0: Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. You can't have the Crusades without Byzantium. The call for help which Alexius Komnenos sent east had gigantic unintended consequences which Alejandro will tell you all about. To hear Alexius's point of view, along with a thousand years of the most dramatic and interesting stories that history has to offer, why not check out the History of Byzantium podcast? You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, though, it's back to the history of Utramir. The mighty in war, Boaman, who was besieging Amalfi at the bridge of Scafati, heard that innumerable Christian people from France had arrived, and were determined to proceed to the sepulchre of our Lord, and were prepared to fight against pagan people. He then diligently inquired as to what type of weapons they fought with, what emblem of Christ they carried as they went their way, and what war cry they shouted in battle. Ordine hight dictation. Deferunt armat bellum congrua, indextra well interutras, quetscapulas, cruque, cristi, babu. Somewhere or teus wood, teus wood, teus wood, una voce coglama. This was the response he received, and in this order. They are properly armed for battle. Either on the right shoulder or between both shoulders, they wear the cross of Christ, and their war cry is, God wills it! God wills it! God wills it! which they all shout in one voice. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, Boeman at once ordered that the most costly cloak he possessed be cut up and the pieces made into crosses. And then the vast majority of the warriors that were besieging the city with him dashed to him. So ardent was their desire, so much so that Count Roger was left nearly all by himself. And he returned to Sicily, mourning and lamenting the loss of all his men. When he returned again to his own land, Lord Bohemond prepared with great zeal to take the path to the Holy Sepulchre. And welcome to History of the Outremer, episode 2.14, Drive Our Ships to New Lands. So today, we dig deep into Bowman of Torontos' return to the Byzantine Roman Empire. And while we're on that subject, if the history of Byzantium interests you, as you heard at the start of today's episode, there's a podcast for that. Robin Pearson's History of Byzantium is one of the best history podcasts out there, and cards on the table, it was while binging History of Byzantium that I began to seriously consider making a podcast of my own. In particular, his end-of-the-century tours of the Roman Empire and the way he mixes in social, demographic, and cultural changes into a narrative history is amazing. I never miss an episode. Bit of a spoiler alert here, but the Outremer states will never be huge players on the world stage. They will always be second rate compared to the great powers around them, including the Byzantine Empire. While we will be talking about the Romans in the future, if you truly want to understand what's going on from the perspective of Constantinople, you gotta head over to History of Byzantium. Anyway... Today, we're going to be taking a close look at the difficulties that surround figuring out what exactly Bowman of Tarenta was up to in 1096 when he decided to participate in this weird armed pilgrimage. And it's mostly an issue of sources. I mentioned back in episode 2.12 that we don't know that much about Raymond of Saint-Gilles. Well, I can tell you that comparatively, we know loads about Bowman, and therein lies the problem. With such a both famous and infamous figure, separating truth and fiction can be nigh impossible. So today, we'll be taking a deep dive into the highly untrustable sources we have for our friend Bohemond, including that most mysterious of crusade narratives, the source for our opening The Gesta Francorum and its anonymous author. So, we wrapped our last episode up with an account of how Bohemond completely derailed a siege of the city of Amalfi, led by his liege and half-brother, Roger Borsa, and their uncle, the powerful Roger Count of Sicily. Apparently, Bohemond noticed some regiments of the Army of the Cross passing by, and decided that the crosses sewed on them sure looked snazzy, and boy, wouldn't it be cool to fight pagans instead of participating in this boring-ass siege? he abandoned the siege and drew away tons of the forces that had been participating in it with him, bringing the siege to an unsuccessful end, much to the annoyance of both his brother Roger and his uncle Roger. Notably, last week's account doesn't exactly paint Bohemond in the best light. It was written by Geoffrey Malaterra, at the behest of Roger of Sicily, who wasn't really a fan of Bohemond and certainly didn't appreciate the loss of his forces to some wackadoodle-armed pilgrimage. Accordingly, his historian, Maraterra, views this whole thing as a, quote, most unfortunate event, end quote. Which makes it all much more believable when we hear, well, what we heard in the opening today. Our opening comes from the Gesta Francorum, which describes the events almost identically, but in a much more positive light. Bowman abandoning the siege at Amalfi is definitely not an unfortunate event here. It's glorious! If we only had the jest that it'd go by, we might think it was a made-up tale. But Malaterra's corroboration definitely makes it seem like this is how things went down. There's also the possibility that the entire event at the Siege of Amalfi was orchestrated by Bohemond, a way of bringing together a pool of soldiers that he could steal away from his brother and uncle. Crucially, most of the soldiers who joined up under Bohemond were, as Geoffrey Malaterra mentions, young, untested knights. I've mentioned it a few times before, but the medieval usage of youth or Juventus to refer to knights in particular is actually a bit tricky. It might not have been a direct reference to age, but more a reference to a social position. There is a social breakdown of the crusading army waiting in the wings, so just you hold on a bit. Anyway, as Maraterra points out, it makes sense that these knights would want to try their luck elsewhere. After all, they had little to gain from sticking around southern Italy, which had once been the playground for ambitious knights. But ever since, the consolidation of Hauteville power had become kind of boring. Bohemond definitely knew Pope Urban personally. His brother and liege, Roger Borsa, was a papal vassal. There's also the chance that Bohemond had some sort of direct contact with Alexios Condinos, the Roman emperor. As I mentioned last time, despite what you'd think... Alexios was super willing to work with defeated enemies. Another of Bowman's brothers, Guy, who'd also participated in the invasion of 1081, was a trusted Byzantine official by this time. So it's really hard to believe that Bowman knew nothing of the armed pilgrimage going on, and it's definitely within the realm of possibility that he decided to stage a chance encounter with crusaders outside the walls of Amalfi as a bit of a recruitment drive. But Why? What are you doing all this for, Boeman? Well, before we can talk about his motivations, I'm going to have to spoil some things here. Because the issue is that later history is going to deeply affect how historians view our good old buddy Boeman, And these sources are the only direct testament we have of Bowman's intentions and desires. So... Bohemond will participate in the First Crusade, and he will be a key military leader. Now, when the Crusade succeeds in taking Antioch, Bohemond will finagle his way into control of the city, defying the Byzantine Emperor Alexios Komnenos, who also claimed control of Antioch. The Principality of Antioch will pretty much immediately enter into conflict with the Romans, and then, after some fun times captured by the Danishman Turks, Boemon will return to Europe to muster a force that will invade the Roman Empire in 1107 with the goal of removing Alexios, more or less. He will fail and then return defeated to Italy, where he will die less than five years later. Of course, we will be delving into all of these events with much more detail in the future. We're going for the skeleton today because here's the thing. All the histories that tell us about what Bohemond was up to in 1096 were written at least after Bohemond's taking of Antioch, and many of them were written, or perhaps surreptitiously edited, after his second invasion of the Roman Empire. Let's take the two biggest sources, the *Gesta Francorum and Anacomdini's The Alexiad. Let's talk about Anna a bit. We already know the basics, as she was a key source for everything to do with her father Alexios' usurpation of the Roman throne and the subsequent Norman invasion. Anna is writing decades later, after the death of both Bohemond and her father, who she's writing to honor. That means two things. One, she's going to favor her father. And two, she knows exactly what's going to happen to both men. So her account of Bowman's actions in 1096 and 1097 can't help but take into consideration his later invasion and the invasion that Bowman's father, Robert Giscar, had led in 1081. She describes the relationship between father and son in the following way. Quote, These two, father and son, might rightly be termed the caterpillar and the locust. For whatever escaped Robert... That his son Bowman took to him and devoured. "And Anna doesn't mince words when she describes Bowman's decision to crusade either. Quote, "The simpler-minded crusaders were urged on by the real desire of worshipping at our Lord's Sepulchre, and visiting the sacred places. But the more astute, especially men like Boweman, and those of like mind, had another. Secret reason, namely, the hope that while on their travels, they might by some means be able to seize the capital itself, looking upon this as a kind of corollary. And Bowman disturbed the minds of many nobler men by thus cherishing his old grudge against the Emperor. End quote. Anna's take fleshes out Geoffrey Manaterra's mention of Bowman's motivation stemming from his desire to subjugate the Roman Empire. But Malaterra isn't the only Latin historian that agrees with Anna. Take a listen to William of Malmesbury, an Anglo-Norman historian, writing around the same time as Anna, in the 12th century. Quote, Urban II's more secret intention was not so well known. This was, by Bowman's advice, to excite almost the whole of Europe to undertake an expedition into Asia. That in such a general commotion of all countries, auxiliaries might easily be engaged, by whose means both Urban might obtain Rome, and Bohemond, Illyria, and Macedonia. For Giscar, his father, had conquered those countries from Alexios, and also all the territory extending into Dyrrhachium to Thessaloniki. Wherefore, Bohemond claimed them as his due, since he had not obtained the inheritance of Apulia, which his father had given to his younger son, Roger." Like I said, you can't take these accounts at face value, not factoring in later events. Bohemond will later attempt to topple Alexios and take control of the Empire. So it's easy to assume that that was his intention in 1096 as well. But you know what happens when you assume. In 1096, there's no concrete reason to think he wasn't open to collaboration with Alexios. And as for Anna, she jumps at any chance to make Bowman seem like a conniving villain. Not saying they're wrong, just saying you have to take their comments in the context of what was going on when they were writing. On the other side of the spectrum, we have the Jester Frankorum. Oh, the Jester Frankorum, and its anonymous author. Until now, I've been following the more or less mainstream assumption that the anonymous author was an Italo-Norman knight in the service of Bohemond, and uh, so as to not bury the lead, this is going to remain our working interpretation. But the identity of the anonymous author is actually a huge, 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 and infinitum controversy. We have no real direct evidence. The theories are mostly based on the construction of the text itself, the style of Latin used, and how the author refers to certain events are the only scraps of evidence we have as to his or her or their identity. And all this circumstantial evidence can be interpreted in myriad ways. And oh boy has it been! In his 2011 translation of the Gesta Francorum, in English titled The Deeds of the Franks and Other Jerusalem Bound Pilgrims, the Earliest Chronicle of the First Crusades, historian Nurmal Das provides four possibilities as to the author or authors of the Gesta Francorum. These are Theory Number One. The traditional view, Anonymous was the younger son of an Italo-Norman nobleman who had originally trained as a cleric, but then became a knight. The career path switch is based on the fact that Anonymous includes some religious references that have been deemed a bit too erudite for someone who wasn't religiously trained. In this telling, Anonymous was a knight in the service of Bowman on the First Crusade and he simply wrote what he experienced an eyewitness account. Theory number two. There is no anonymous. Instead, the gesta Francorum is the work of a scriptorium, a group of monks who compiled various eyewitness accounts and narratives to create a single text. This explains some inconsistencies in the text as to the names of various crusaders and places. They were coming from different sources. Theory number three. Goes even further, in this theory, there isn't even a compilation, and the Gesta can't be taken as any sort of eyewitness account. It's purely a literary rendition of events. And theory number four, which is Das's theory. That it was indeed a collective work, but less a compilation, and more of an adaptation of one of various field notes. A bit of a mix of two and three. But Das says there's no reason to assume that the author was anonymous. He thinks he's dug up the names of the men who wrote it up. Now, the only surviving copies of the Gesta Francorum seem to have been written in Europe, based on the materials used. That doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't written by a knight in the East. After all, it could just be a copy of an original. The oldest version of the Gesta is from the first half of the 12th century. More specific dating isn't really possible. And scrawled at the bottom of folio 45 at the end of the Gesta are two lines that read in English Peter, the clerk of Mirabeau, William, the clerk of Versailles, Walter of Franfroid, layman, John of Jelis, layman. Normal Das believes these four individuals to be the creators of the Gesta Francorum. Who were working as part of a scriptorium, probably using some sort of source material to craft this narrative. There is a slight issue with assuming that the Gesta was the product of a scriptorium, though, and that is the language. As we've talked about a few times, the Latin of the Gesta Francorum is rough. Uh, it has clear influences from the romance vernaculars of the time. The upside for me being that it's much easier to read. Uh, It's a lot closer to French and Spanish, which I'm much more comfortable with than Latin. This rough language has traditionally been taken to be the consequence of its authorship. A knight, even if he had trained as a cleric at one point, wasn't going to have the same level of literary skill as a monk. And some theories have even postulated that the text was actually originally an oral recitation of the events, by a knight speaking in romance, whose words were then transcribed by a cleric who made superficial changes to make it more Latin-like and acceptable. As this process was done on the fly, the result was clearly much closer to the source, spoken vernacular romance. So if, as Doss says, this work was the product of a trained scriptorium, why write it in vernacular? Dass’s take is that it was done this way on purpose, to make it sound more authentic. It's just a fake veneer of vernacular, to maybe make it more accessible. I'm not sure if I buy that take myself, but I'm not going to dismiss it outright. It would definitely make sense if the text was intended to serve as, perhaps, propaganda. Let me throw a theory at you. The year is 1105-ish. Bohemond, Prince of Antioch, is planning to once again invade the Roman Empire. He's in France, and he decides that sharing the valiant noble deeds of the First Crusade would be the perfect way to drum up support. So he pays a scriptorium and sponsors the creation of a text that paints him as the best crusader ever. The Golden God! A text that will survive to the modern day, and still bear traces of its origins as a work of propaganda, both in its language, which was simplified to make it more accessible to the knights that Bohemond wanted to attract, and in its overall structure. But again, we have no direct evidence for any of these theories, and if the gesta francorum was the work of a scriptorium, where's it getting its facts from? Well, Maybe from other eyewitness accounts that have been lost to history. Or maybe from one that wasn't. That's right, we have to talk about Peter Tudebode. I've mentioned this before, but there's this whole other account of the First Crusade called the Historia de Jerusalemitano Itinere, History of the Journey to Jerusalem, which does have a named author. Peter Tudobode. We don't know too much about him, but he claims to be a priest who participated in the crusade. Here's the thing, though. Peter Tudobode's text is almost identical to the jester It's missing a few sections, but it also adds in plenty more, such as sections where Tudobode directly indicates what he was up to during a siege or a battle or whatever. So I wake up in the morning, and I step outside, and I look at my crusade narratives, which are clearly plagiarizing each other, and I scream from the top of my lungs, what's going on? Well, in his article, The Relationship Between the Gesta Francorum and Peter Tudebode's Historia de Hierosolimitano Solimitano Itinere, historian Marcus Bull tackles this very question, uh, with much less for non-blondes references. Quote, one of the most seemingly intractable and long-running problems in the study of the contemporary historiography of the First Crusade has been the relationship between two of the so-called eyewitness accounts of that expedition. The anonymous text, generally known as the Gestafrancorum Francorum et Aliorum Hierosolimitanorum, hereafter GF, and the Historia de Hierosolimitano Itinere, attributed to a priest, probably from Quivre in Poitou, named Peter Tudebode. Hereafter, the text that bears his name will be referred to as P.T. Within the tangled and still imperfectly understood web of relationships between the many histories of the First Crusade that were written soon after the event, both the eyewitnesses and what might be termed the second generation texts, the nexus between the G.F. and P.T. is self-evidently the single closest lexically, syntactically, substantively in terms of the propositional content of each text, and globally in their respective plot architectures. A particularly close affinity is immediately evident. Although each text contains passages absent from the other, this is more the case in P.T., which is generally the more expansive, sequences in which there are close correspondences predominate. In the closeness of the two texts, something more is at stake than the patterns of borrowings and influences that can be detected between other narratives of the First Crusade. More particularly, the relationship between the G.F. and P.T. differs from those between the G.F. and its adaptations by Robert the Monk, Guibert of Nogent, and Baldric of Brugoy, who were able to express the G.F.'s plot content in more elevated literary registers. In contrast, the difference in the historiographical ambitions evidenced by the GF and PT in those portions in which they directly overlap resides very precisely in what might sometimes appear to be trivial lexical preferences and sentence-building habits. End quote. Bull's article is just one of many attempts to work out what the relationship is here. There are three main theories. One, the Gesta is a modified version of Peter Tudebode. Maybe this was the source material the scriptorium Bowman hired was working from, allegedly. 2. Peter Tudebode's text is a modified version of the Gesta made for who knows what reason. Maybe just so Tudebode could self-insert himself into the narrative of the First Crusade. And 3. The most interesting of the bunch that both the Gesta and Tudebode are adaptations of an even earlier work. Marcus Bull brings a new element into the mix here. See, there's a third manuscript. In the archives of St. Catherine's College, a constituent college of the University of Cambridge, and by the way, Sir Ian McKellen's alma mater, you know, Gandalf. This third manuscript is bound in wooden boards and dates to the 13th century. St. Catherine's was founded in 1473, but the source of this manuscript is unknown. It does not appear on any of the college's records until 1710. It seems to have been produced by an English scriptorium, and it consists of copies of various texts. All of these are randomly organized in a haphazard manner, and their topics are pretty eclectic. There's a copy of Historia Alexandri, the history of Alexander, a first-century Latin biography of my namesake, Alexander the Great. And there's some portions that seem to focus on the geography of the British Isles, including extracts from a 12th-century history of England called the Historia Anglorum, as well as the Topographia Hiberniae, topography of Ireland. And there are some other random chunks devoted to physiognomy, that's the study of faces to ascertain facts about people, now recognized as a pseudoscience, but pretty popular in the medieval era. And then, from folio 48R to 90V, there's a work titled Peregrinatio Antiochi per Urbanum Papam Facta, The Pilgrimage to Antioch, Carried Out by Pope Urban. In 1925, the English scholar and ghost story author Montague Rhodes James, better known as M.R. James, who was cataloging the various medieval manuscripts owned by Cambridge, labeled the Peregrinatio Antiochi as another copy of the Gesta Francorum. And that's what it appears to be on the surface. But once you dig a little deeper, you start to notice some odd deviations from the Gesta. Deviations that line up with Tudebode. This random text appears to be some sort of hybrid. It has a lot in common with the Gesta, but it also has a lot in common with Tudobode. So what the fuck is the Peregrinatio Antiochi? Well, Bull digs deep into the construction of phrases between all three texts, and what he finds is that the Peregrinatio Antiochi seems to be an intermediary between the two. A bridge. In how it constructs phrases, the gesta is the simplest of all three. Peregrinatio adds some more detail. And then Tutobot pads this out even further. Let's take one example. The famous Deus Vult that's chanted by the crusaders passing by Bowman. We heard about this in the opening. In English, the phrase goes, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it. In one voice, they call out. The gesta says, Deus vult. Deus vult. Deus vult. Una voce clamant. Translated word for word, that's God wants, God wants, God wants. One voice, they call out. In classical Latin, you don't need uh, object pronouns like it. You just say want, and it's understood that you're talking about he wants it, he wants this. But that's not the case in romance. In Romance, you put object pronouns in front of the verb. The peregrinatio actually makes the text much closer to Romance, and it throws that article in. It says, Word for word, God it wants, God it wants, God it wants. Together, one voice they call out. Which is pretty close to how you would say it in French. Uh, Dieu le veut, Dieu le veut, Dieu le veut. Ensemble, une voix, ils acclament. And then, Tudebode the makes some more changes, bringing it to Deus hochwilt, Deus Deus hoc Simul omnes conclamant. Word for word, God this wants, God this wants, God this wants together all one voice they call out with this third text the relationship between the gesta francorum and peter tudebode's text becomes a bit clearer the peregrinatio antiochi is the first in a series of attempts to create what would eventually become peter tudebode's text working from not necessarily the gesta francorum per se but a text that was a lot closer to the gesta francorum I mean, I say it's the first, but we have no idea how many other attempts there were, or in what order they were made, because none of the others have survived. As Bull puts it, quote, One can glimpse in the morphology of the P.T. the same sorts of impulses to enhance a base text by means of substantive and stylistic alteration that also subtended, to a much greater extent, the crusade histories of Robert the Monk, Baldrick of Burgoy, and Guibert of Nogent. There was a common source, but only to the extent that there was a shared point of origin for the extant forms of the GF, the Peregrinatio Antiochi, and the PT. And this point of origin was, effectively, the GF. Not necessarily entirely as it now survives, but very substantially so. There is no value in parking the uncertainties that attend the GF and the texts closely related to it in an imprecise and ultimately unknowable space marked common source. How and why the GF came into being and whether even earlier written narratives and other sources fed into it are matters for debate. But the morphology of the PT can only be explained by the anteriority of the GF as St. Catherine's Three makes clear. In other words, the GF is exactly what it has often been taken to be—the earliest surviving narrative telling of the course of the First Crusade." End quote. As Bull mentions, this doesn't mean that the surviving version of the gesta we have was the exact source for Tudebode. It's just older and much closer to that mysterious origin point. There very well could have been an even earlier work, and Tudabod is just a further deviation from that origin point than the Gesta was. All we know is that of the surviving works we have, the Gesta is the oldest and the closest to the original, though not necessarily the original itself. Maybe it supplanted most of those earlier forms because Bohemond made a ton of copies so as to spread his propaganda far and wide. Allegedly. I gotta tell ya, I, I live for this shit. God, names scrawled at the bottom of a folio, a secret manuscript found in the archives of uh, the University of Cambridge? Yes, please. But all fun must come to an end, and to move forward, we need a working interpretation of the justice authorship. So, knowing all that we've just covered, why am I sticking to the interpretation of the Jester Frank Quorum as the work of an anonymous knight in Bowman's army? Well, because that interpretation is just useful. There probably was a soldier's account that was used to form the core of the Gesta Francorum as we know it. And then all these other works, which may have been based on that original or the Gesta itself. Uh, Peter Tudebode's text, the Peregrinatio Antiochiae, the texts of Baldric of Burgoy, Robert the Monk, and Gibert of Nogent, and uh, so on. While the Gesta, as we know it, seems to have been produced in an environment rife with propaganda and fake news, either because it's the truth, or because it's what the real author, or authors, wanted us to think? There's nothing in the gesta that directly disproves the idea that it was written by a knight loyal to Bowman. And although I feel the complexity I've added to that interpretation is important to consider, and interesting as all get-out, it doesn't really answer any questions. And we, we need a working interpretation at least, one with plenty of asterisks, but also one that allows us to reference the Gesta without entering into a huge tangent each time. So I will continue to talk about Anonymous as an Italo-Norman knight, because at the very least, that's the perspective the Gesta is trying to convince us it's been written from. So, when we're talking about bohemond's participation in the First Crusade, these are our sources. Yeah, they all have their issues— Just as we did with the Peasants' Crusade, we'll have to be comparing and contrasting them, taking into consideration their biases and trying to figure out which history we're going to move forward with. On occasion, this will mean accepting that we can't know the exact truth of things. Which brings us back to a question I asked what seems like an eternity ago. What were Bowman's motivations when he decided to take up the cross? Now, I'm not going to go so far as Anna and say that Bohemond was immediately scheming to take over the empire, but there can be no doubt that the possibility of squeezing something out of Alexios Komnenos was in his crafty mind when he took up the cross. As we talked about last time, his position in southern Italy wasn't terrible, but it definitely wasn't enough for the ever-ambitious son of Robert Guiscard, terror of the world. I honestly don't think he had any clear plan in 1096, he was just winging it. The crusade was a way for him to get closer to the Roman Empire, shake that tree and see if any coconuts came falling out. Worst case scenario, he'd just head back home and raid his brother's lands again to get something from him. Anyway, does a guy like Bohemond, whose father's chosen title was Terror of the World, really need a specific reason to participate in war? But you did this for what? Why not? Why? Why not? Why though? More likely than not, Bohemond was planning to engage in a similar sort of embattled negotiation to what he had used with his brother. A bit of combat to prove not only his worth, but the threat he could pose if he was so inclined. In an attempt to get something from Alexios. Not necessarily to topple the guy. We'll be talking about what he likely thought he could get from the Roman Vasilefs in the future. Whatever his motivation, and whenever he learned of the journey, much like his former cousin-in-law, Raymond of Saint-Gilles, Bohemond fully committed to this armed pilgrimage. We have records that confirm he gave the governor of Bari full right to sell any of his property in the rich city and this source of revenue was likely what he used to prepare for the voyage. But it wasn't nearly the amount men like Raymond of Saint-Gilles could swing around, and that will become a factor later on. Interestingly, Bowman seems to have been able to trust that his brother, Roger Borsa, wouldn't revoke his territory while he was away. Bowman likely relied on two factors here. First, Hauteville loyalty. As we talked about last time, the Oatville's seemed to have trusted each other much more than others, and while they did engage in raiding as a facet of negotiation, they wouldn't just outright fuck each other over. And second, if Bowman was crusading as part of a papal project, it wouldn't exactly be acceptable for a papal vassal, like his brother Roger Borsa was, to fuck over a crusader. Now, it's hard to pin down numbers here, but it seems like Bowman had the smallest contingent of the First Crusade, probably between 3,500 and 4,000 members. The big names of his army weren't actually all that big either. It contained almost none of the court members of his uncle Roger, the Count of Sicily, or his brother Roger, the Duke of Apulia and Calabria. In fact, one of the richest Sicilian nobles joined up with another army, showing that Bowman's contingent was not viewed as particularly prestigious. As we talked about, Malaterra characterizes his army as composed of youths, seeking to prove themselves, not established lords. Bohemond's army also seems to have had much less clergy members and peasants. Raymond of Saint-Gilles' army had tons of clergy members, including the papal legate, Adamar of Lepuy. And as I mentioned, this led to some friction between Raymond, the various other nobles, and the clergy. There were also considerable amounts of random, non-combatants, more traditional pilgrims, attached to most of the other crusading armies. Maybe because there was less prestige associated with it, Bowman's force didn't seem to have this element, at least not to the same extent. So while it was smaller in total, it was also a leaner fighting machine, compared to the bulky, mobile villages that other contingents resembled. Most of the knights seemed to have come from a sort of B-list. Members of the extended Oatville clan network, the ones who'd been unable to inherit anything good. A lot like Bowman. Obviously, he had other Italo-Norman knights with him, but there were also Lombards, local Greeks, and probably some Sicilian Muslims. All the sorts of soldiers that would have been in the average Oatville army of the era. This army was also incredibly multicultural. Uh, We often think of the medieval era as being composed of blocks. The Latin world, the Greek world, the Muslim world. But in reality, it was just as porous as our modern era. You have interactions between Vikings and Muslims. You have Germans and Slavs in Turkish armies. You have Armenians running Egyptian caliphates. Especially within the region surrounding the Mediterranean, there was a high degree of mobility. And this was especially true for contact zones, such as il mezzogiorno. So Bowman himself was likely fluent in not only the Norman-French variety of Romance, but also the Lombard-Italian variety, and Greek. And even if he himself wasn't quite fluent, members of his army also spoke Arabic. One of those Arabic-speaking members was his nephew, Tancred. Ah, Tancred. We'll have plenty more to say about him later on, but for now, let's talk about his relationship with Bowman. Now, Tancred is generally taken to be Bowman's nephew. His mother was Emma of Oatville, one of Robert Giscar's daughters. The sources are a bit confused as to who her mother was, whether it was Sikil Gaita, Robert's second wife, or Agberada, Robert's first wife, Bowman's mother. I tend to lean towards the second interpretation, because Bowman was much closer with Tancred than with his half-brothers, likely because he was much closer with his full sister, Emma historian Jean Fleury has speculated that Emma might not have been Robert's daughter, but rather his sister, and that would make Tancred Bowman's cousin, not his nephew. This might be true, but there was enough of an age difference between Bowman and Tancred that, for all intents and purposes, their relationship was much more like uncle and nephew, even if they were actually cousins, as Fleury thinks. Tancred's brother, William, also decided to join up. However, William wasn't willing to wait, and so he just joined up with the army that Bowman had seen at Amalfi and went ahead, while Tancred waited for Bowman to finish preparing. Speaking of, Bowman's preparations were extremely quick. Raymond of Saint-Gilles took over a year to prepare, Bowman took only a few months. He left in October of 1096, and he quickly crossed the Adriatic and arrived in the Balkans. We heard in the opening what he got up to once he arrived there. And here, it's once again important to remember that Bowman had been invading and pillaging these lands a decade prior. Tons of folks were super displeased to see him once more. And there was certainly a flood of letters streaming into Alexus's inbox, terrified at the return of the Italo-Norman menace. Funnily enough, Bohemond seemed to have gone out of his way to avoid Duracium, modern-day Duras the main center of Roman power on the Adriatic coast, and of course, the main target of Norman aggression in 1081. This is a definite sign that Bowman wasn't seriously looking to conquer the empire, as without taking dracium that would have been pretty much impossible. But that doesn't mean he was in full-on peace mode either. Now, the Gesta bends over backwards to explain every act of violence during Bowman's slow approach to Constantinople, Supposedly, they weren't being aggressive at all. They only acted in self-defense and out of necessity to steal the food that the locals refused to sell to them. The Gesta uses the term justitia terrae, literally, justice of the land, which refers to the fact that these were Christian lands and not supposed to be attacked by Christian crusaders. But as we've seen over the last few episodes... These crusading rules were really more like very flexible guidelines, and no crusading army is going to draw any sort of line barring them from sacking Christian cities. With this in mind, I also really enjoy Anonymous' complaint that the local Romans saw the crusading army as men who had come to destroy and kill, not as pilgrims, oh no, immediately followed by a description of how they burnt a town to the ground, along with the people inside. I mean, I guess they were heretics. Uh, By the way, if they really were heretics, and that's not just an excuse after the fact, they likely would have been Bogomils or Manichaeans, both groups that had a relatively significant presence in the Balkans. But even when it wasn't concerning heretics, who everyone knows obviously can just be killed as if they were insects, no moral judgment whatsoever, Uh, even when it wasn't concerning heretics, Bowman seems not to have had total control over his army, or even over his second-in-command. His nephew Tancred seems to have had a privileged position and been a trusted commander, but as we talked about last time, Oatvilles tended to have somewhat tense relationships with their lieutenants. Tancred seems to have wanted to prove himself, and much as members in Peter the Hermit's army had done, he instigated several conflicts, according to the Gesta. Again, if we believe the gesta, these actions went against Bohemond's wishes and led to conflict between uncle and nephew. Tancred's individualistic streak will definitely be coming up again as well, so put a pin in that too. Now, despite quickly departing from southern Italy, once he arrived in the Balkans, Bohemond seemed to want to dilly-dally. He didn't arrive in Constantinople until April, Just for context, that's about 5 kilometers or 3 miles of movement a day. That's, I don't know, maybe an hour of walking? It was a very meandering path that he took. Why so slow? Well, there are a few reasons, but one key thing to remember is Bowman's love of embattled negotiation. As long as he was hanging out in the Balkans, he was putting pressure on Alexios. And he could eventually cash out on all that pressure. He made efforts to behave within the confines of respectability. The gesta focuses on these elements. Bohemond letting the emperor's Pecheneg soldiers go. Bohemond refusing to attack Roman cities. Blah, 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 blah. Throughout all this, Bohemond was almost certainly in direct contact with Alexios Komnenos. We don't hear about it because neither Anna nor Anon have anything to gain from admitting to close ties between the two. But finally, after taking his sweet time, Bowman rocked up to Constantinople on April 9th, 1097, half a year after arriving in the Balkans. And once he got there, oh boy, the politicking really came into play. See, my read on all this is that this was all just a show. Bowman was just applying pressure on Alexios to try to force the emperor to negotiate on his terms. Just the mere presence of his Norman army in the Balkans was an implicit threat. But Bowman quickly realized that his fellow crusade leaders could also be used to twist Alexios' arm. <laughs> Around January of 1097, Bowman had sent a letter to a fellow Latin Crusader who was already in Constantinople, the Duke of Lorraine and future first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, Godfrey of Bouillon. Godfrey had arrived at Constantinople just a few days before Christmas of 1096. The Lotharingian Duke had, from the outset, had a prickly relationship with the Roman Emperor. Perhaps that's why Bowman felt he could make his own alliance with Godfrey and put even more pressure on Alexios. But Godfrey of Bouillon, he had his own shit going on. And next time on History of the Outremer, we'll be exploring the crusading path taken by the first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem.